1: Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 102 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, last week we started to lay out the background to the Battle of Pea Ridge. We left off last week in late February 1862 with the Federals, led by Samuel Curtis, having pushed Sterling Price and his State Guard out of Missouri and into Northwest Arkansas. Once they reached Arkansas, Price's weary and famished troops had joined up with the Confederate force, commanded by Ben McCulloch, that was wintering in the area. Now the combined rebel force is in camps in the Boston Mountains, south of Fayetteville, and the Confederate District Commander, Earl Van Dorn, is coming from Little Rock to lead the Southern Army in person. Van Dorn has grand dreams of using McCulloch's and Price's troops to crush the Federals, and then he'll advance north through Missouri and capture St. Louis.
1: Meanwhile, after successfully pushing Price and his state guardsmen out of Missouri and pursuing them into northwest Arkansas, the Federal Commander, Curtis, had then faced a critical decision. Would he declare his mission accomplished and retire back into southwest Missouri? Or would he remain in Arkansas? and prepare to fight for the foothold he had established in enemy territory. During the last few days of February, Curtis dispersed his divisions across the countryside to find supplies and forage, but by the 1st of March, he had made his decision. He would remain in northwest Arkansas, consolidate his forces, and let the Confederates make the next move. Curtis knew that Price and McCulloch, as well as their new commander, Van Dorn, couldn't let the situation stand as it was so they would have to come to him and when they did he would be ready for them
0: if we backtrack in time to february 22nd that was the day sterling price and his missourians finally reached the safety of the boston Mountains south of fayetteville And it was also the day that the news finally reached Earl Van Dorn that Price had been pushed south by the Federals. Within two days of receiving that news, Van Dorn had left Little Rock and was on his way to take command of McCulloch's and Price's combined force. He was accompanied only by his chief of staff, his aide, who was also his nephew, and his personal servant. By the time the men had traveled 150 miles and reached Van Buren, Arkansas, on March 1st, Van Dorn was suffering from chills and fever, a consequence of his having fallen into the cold waters of the Little Red River while the party was crossing it.
1: Although Van Dorn was feeling under the weather, he was encouraged by a telegram from McCulloch that was waiting for him at Van Buren. The telegram was dated that day, and read, "'Sir, I have ordered the command to be ready to march as soon as you arrive,' with six days cooked rations, and will notify General Price to be ready also. We await your arrival anxiously. We now have force enough to whip the enemy. The next day, Sunday, March 2nd, Van Dorn and his companions pressed onward into the Boston Mountains and reached Price's headquarters, where Van Dorn received an enthusiastic welcome from the Missourian. After their miserable retreat down into Arkansas, Price's men had spent the last week in the relative luxury of the Confederate camps in the Boston Mountains. The weather even turned milder, and during that week of calm and decent weather, some of the Missourians received uniforms for the very first time, helping them look more like an army and less like an armed mob.
0: During that week, the Confederate cavalry had been keeping a close eye on the Federals, so when Van Dorn met with both McCulloch and Price on March 3rd, they were able to give him a fairly accurate picture of the enemy's deployment. What the rebel cavalry had reported was a federal army that was divided across the countryside, and so Van Dorn decided to strike quickly at one element of the enemy army, two divisions commanded by Franz Siegel that were camped around Bentonville, about 25 miles north of Fayetteville. Van Dorn reckoned that if the Confederate Army could move fast enough, it could attack the Yankees at Bentonville with a three-to-one advantage and then turn on the main enemy force and enjoy a similar advantage.
1: The key to Van Dorn's plan was speed and surprise. And so Earl Van Dorn, who was a cavalryman at heart, acted as if his army in northwest Arkansas were a cavalry troop out on the Texas frontier. He ordered the army to travel light, without tents or baggage, and the men would march with only their muskets, forty rounds in their cartridge boxes, one blanket, and three days' rations in their haversacks. The supply train with ammunition and provisions would follow behind. Since there was no time to waste, the army would leave its camps the very next morning, March 4th. They would march north to Fayetteville and then continue on the Elm Springs Road to Bentonville, a trek of thirty-eight miles and Van Dorn wanted them to do it with all possible speed and without being discovered.
0: The next morning, Tuesday the 4th, Van Dorn's army started out on their march north in a late winter snowstorm. The nice weather of the past week changed just as the Confederates left their camps. One southern soldier serving in the 3rd Louisiana recalled that, quote, The first day's march was toward Fayetteville, The snow and sleet were blinding, and the roads in an awful condition. We halted for the night, but of course anything like sleep was out of the question. The second day the weather was somewhat better, and the sun shone a little."
1: But unknown to Van Dorn, even as his army set out on its march, his plan was already starting to unravel. That's because the federal commander had decided that rather than let his army remain in its spread-out deployment, he would start to concentrate his forces. To that end, on March 3rd, the day before the Confederates set out, Curtis ordered Siegel and his two divisions at Bentonville to fall back to Little Sugar Creek, where Curtis had already started work on a strong defensive position where he would meet the inevitable Rebel advance. Since Siegel didn't know that the inevitable Rebel advance had actually already started, he didn't feel the need for any hurry to fall back to Little Sugar Creek, and so he took his time getting ready to leave Bentonville. That meant Van Dorn might still catch the Yankees at Bentonville, but the window of opportunity was closing.
0: On March 5th, the second day of their advance, the Confederates, with Price's men in the lead, started north from Fayetteville on the Elm Springs Road. The troops trudged along through the snow, sleet, and mud. One soldier later said, quote, "...it seemed as if General Van Dorn imagined the men were made of cast steel, with the strength and powers of endurance of a horse." Scarcely time was given the men to prepare food and snatch a little rest. End quote. Some of the soldiers grumbled when they noticed that while they made the wretched march north, Van Dorn, whose illness had flared up again shortly after leaving the camps, was riding snug in an ambulance.
1: While well, Van Dorn rode snug in his ambulance, and while his troops trudged north out of Fayetteville, Franz Siegel at Bentonville had started to draw in his pickets in preparation for moving his two divisions to Little Sugar Creek, as per Curtis's orders. As part of Siegel's preparations, the cavalry outpost at Elm Springs was brought in, which meant the road from Fayetteville to Bentonville was left unguarded just as the Confederate Army was approaching.
2: On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Late in the afternoon of the 5th, the second day of their march, the Confederates arrived at Elm Springs between Fayetteville and Bentonville and found that Siegel had withdrawn his outpost the day before. And so the rebels spent the night at Elm Springs with a fortunate few finding a house to sleep in, while those not so fortunate built large fires to keep warm, since the weather remained very cold with intermittent snow showers. While most of their comrades were trying to keep warm or trying to get some desperately needed rest at Elm Springs, the 3rd Texas Cavalry was patrolling north toward Bentonville. Late in the afternoon, in the failing light and blowing snow, the Texas horsemen ran into some federal pickets about five miles north of Elm Springs. The pickets had been left there by a careful Union officer, Colonel Frederick Schaefer of the 2nd Missouri, who, despite Siegel's orders, had no intention of leaving the vital road unguarded. Schaefer's good sense paid off, as his pickets discovered the Confederates were advancing up the Elm Springs-Bentonville road
1: but the Confederate advance had already been discovered even before that little skirmish between the 2nd Missouri Pickets and the 3rd Texas Cavalry. That was because a loyal Union man from Fayetteville had found Curtis and told the federal commander that the entire rebel army had passed through Fayetteville on their way north the day before. Later that evening, one of Curtis's spies also reported in, confirming the local man's story. The news that the inevitable enemy advance was underway prompted Curtis to send an urgent message to Siegel, ordering him to fall back to Little Sugar Creek immediately, even making a night march if necessary. Siegel received Curtis's urgent message and, coupled with the report from Schaefer that rebels were on the Elm Springs Road just south of Bentonville, well, it finally spurred Siegel into action. He called an officer's meeting at 1 a.m. on the morning of Thursday, March 6th and issued orders for the withdrawal from Bentonville. General of division and the wagons of the supply train would set out immediately for Little Sugar Creek, and then Colonel Osterhaus would follow with his division.
0: In his book, The Battle of Pea Ridge, The Civil War Fight for the Ozarks, James R. Knight writes that, quote, in spite of the darkness and cold, the, the withdrawal went reasonably well, with General Aspeth and the trains followed by Colonel Osterhouse's division getting clear of Bentonville by mid-morning. Siegel had kept about 600 men and a battery of artillery with him in the town and intended to add Colonel Schaefer's men to this group, giving him a rear guard of about 1,200 men. Having given orders to that effect, Siegel walked over to the Eagle Hotel on the town square and ordered breakfast. It was about 9.30 a.m. A few minutes later, Colonel Schaefer with his 2nd Missouri Infantry came into town. Nobody gave Schaefer the order to stay with the rear guard, so he marched his men out of town toward Little Sugar Creek, and Siegel lost half of his planned force. End quote.
1: While his army had made themselves as comfortable as possible on the frigid night of March 5th, Van Dorn had worried about the skirmish that the 3rd Texas Cavalry had gotten into north of Elm Springs. He seemed to finally decide that if the Federals in Bentonville had been alerted to his army's advance, he could perhaps still achieve some measure of surprise by dividing his force and attacking the enemy from two directions. So Van Dorn sent most of his cavalry northwest up the Osage Mills Road, while he marched his weary infantry straight up the Bentonville Road. If Van Dorn actually had a plan, it seemed to be that his cavalry would hit the Federals in Bentonville from the west while the rebel infantry attacked from the south. But although he didn't know it, Van Dorn had already missed his last chance to intercept the main body of the Federal troops that had been at Bentonville. By the time the Confederate commander set his plan into motion on the morning of March 6th, most of Siegel's troops and supply train were already on their way to join Curtis at Little Sugar Creek and the only Federals left in Bentonville were Siegel himself and his small rear guard.
0: Just after 9 a.m., the head of Van Dorn's column ran into Yankee cavalry on the Elm Springs Road about five miles south of Bentonville. After a short skirmish, the enemy horsemen withdrew up the road. Van Dorn now knew beyond any doubt that he had lost the element of surprise, so he sent what few mounted men he had kept with him galloping up the road toward Bentonville. And so just after 10 o'clock, three things happened very quickly. First, Siegel came out of the Eagle Hotel and discovered that Schaefer and the 2nd Missouri had left town, leaving him with only 600 men.
1: Second, the cavalry detachment that had just tangled with the head of Van Dorn's column came galloping into Bentonville with word that the rebels were right behind them.
0: And third, Confederate horsemen led by James McIntosh, coming from Osage Mills, and Elijah Gates, coming up the Elm Springs Road, met just south of Bentonville and joined forces. Thus, Brigadier General Franz Siegel was caught at the tail end of his retreating column with a rear guard that amounted to one under-strength regiment, and he was facing the oncoming rush of practically every horseman in Van Dorn's army.
1: Siegel quickly got his rear guard on the move, headed east out of Bentonville, in the ensuing running battle, Siegel was aided by the tactics chosen by Confederate Brigadier General James McIntosh. McIntosh was a West Pointer, an aggressive, black-bearded cavalry officer who, as an officer in the U.S. Army, had served at Fort Smith, Arkansas before the Civil War. Now, McIntosh, instead of simply riding east around Bentonville to outdistance and then cut off Siegel's slower moving detachment, McIntosh divided his horsemen, sending Gates and his Missouri cavalry directly across the open prairie to harass Siegel, while he, McIntosh, took his Texans through Bentonville and out around to the north to circle around behind Siegel's group. But while Gates did his best to slow down the Yankee rear guard, McIntosh soon ran into difficulty. Speed was essential if McIntosh's maneuver was going to work but as he pushed his troopers along, his men and horses began to break down due to fatigue and the freezing temperatures. One young Texan said, quote, I was so benumbed with cold that I could not cap my pistols. I tried ever so hard to do so, but had my life depended on it, I could not have succeeded, End quote.
0: As the progress of McIntosh's flanking movement slowed to a walk, With some of the frozen Texans simply dismounting and leading their jaded mounts along the road, Gates harried the retreating Federals as best he could, but Siegel conducted his rear guard skillfully, and despite some sharp fighting along the way, he managed to escape. Around 4 p.m., McIntosh had to inform Van Dorn that the Yankees had managed to slip away from Bentonville.
1: And so, by the evening of the 6th, Samuel Curtis had managed to concentrate his scattered forces. The last unit to arrive was Colonel William Vandever's detachment, which reached Little Sugar Creek after a truly heroic effort. Vandever's column marched 42 miles in 16 hours in freezing temperatures along icy roads without losing a single man. But now all of the Federals were concentrated on or near the spot Curtis had previously selected as the location where his army would meet the Confederate advance. The ground that the careful and methodical Curtis, an engineer by training, had chosen was a strong position astride the telegraph road on the north bank of Little Sugar Creek, atop the bluffs overlooking the stream. With the Federal infantry and artillery entrenched on the bluffs and firing down on any enemy attempting to cross the stream, the Little Sugar Creek Valley would be turned into a killing field.
0: When Earl Van Dorn, riding in his ambulance, reached Bentonville about an hour behind the Confederate cavalry, he was desperately unhappy that he had failed to cut off Siegel's half of the Union Army. In their book, Pea Ridge, Civil War Campaign in the West, William Shea and Earl Hess explain that, quote, "...as daylight faded on March 6th, the Confederates found themselves in a critical situation." After three days of arduous toil men and animals were in pitiful condition, straggling was epidemic, and food and forage were gone. Such a worn-out set of men I never saw, exclaimed a Confederate soldier. They had not one single mouthful of food to eat. Despite this perilous state of affairs, Van Dorn never considered returning to the Boston mountains. He believed that the Federals had barely escaped annihilation and were on the run. He intended to pursue them into Missouri as far as possible, perhaps all the way to St. Louis. Van Dorn's resolve was strengthened by the arrival late in the day of Albert Pike's command from the Indian Territory, the battalion-sized 1st and 2nd Cherokee-mounted rifles, and a squadron of Texas cavalry."
1: Van Dorn met with Price, McCulloch, and McIntosh about 5 p.m. to discuss the Army's next move. McCulloch, who was the most familiar with the area, said that the Federal Army's position at Little Sugar Creek was extremely strong and he recommended against making an attack on it. He instead suggested that the Confederates try to get around the enemy's right flank by way of a back road known as the Bentonville Detour. The Bentonville Detour ran in a roughly northwesterly arc for about eight miles across Pea Ridge before it intersected with the Telegraph Road in Cross Timber Hollow, five miles north of the Yankees' defensive position at Little Sugar Creek. Van Dorn thought that McCulloch's suggestion was a capital idea, and he decided to set the army in motion that very night. McCulloch couldn't believe his ears. Given the condition of the men and animals, the thought of immediately starting the army off on a night march seemed unthinkable to the Texan. He asked Van Dorn, quote, for God's sake to let the poor, worn out, and hungry soldiers rest and sleep that night, and then attack the next morning." End quote. But Van Dorn, who was still acting as if the Southern Army were a cavalry troop that he could maneuver hither and yon on a whim, refused to heed McCulloch's plea. He had made up his mind. The Army would move immediately.
0: In their book on P. Ridge, Shea and Hess point out that another point of contention at that officer's meeting was the nature of the operation. McCulloch's proposal had been for a limited movement around the federal right that would force the enemy army to abandon its strong defensive position and withdraw back to Missouri. In a rare moment of agreement, Sterling Price supported McCulloch's plan. But Earl Van Dorn wanted to accomplish something grander and more decisive than a mere turning movement— he wanted to envelop rather than merely outflank the Yankees. Van Dorn wanted the Army to march over the Bentonville detour to cross Timber Hollow and block the telegraph road deep in the Federal's rear. Then, with the Confederate Army firmly astride the enemy's escape route back to Missouri, Curtis would have no choice but to surrender.
1: Shea and Hess write, There is no evidence that Van Dorn gave any serious thought to the difficulties and risks inherent in his plan. While an envelopment clearly offered the possibility of a more spectacular triumph than a flanking movement, it meant the exhausted Confederates would have to march nearly twice as far. Moreover, the maneuver was exceptionally dangerous. If Van Dorn placed his entire army in the Federal rear, he also effectively placed the entire Federal army in his own rear. Van Dorn's analysis of the situation contained a fatal flaw he failed to see that Curtis was concentrating for a fight, not running away from one. Undeterred by his lack of success thus far, unconcerned by the misgivings of his two principal lieutenants, and indifferent to the deteriorating condition of his forces, Van Dorn set his envelopment in motion. End quote.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is P. Ridge, Civil War Campaign in the West by William L. Shea and Earl J. Hess.
1: For being one of the major battles out in the Trans-Mississippi and being just a really interesting Civil War battle, there seems to have been surprisingly little written about P. Ridge, which is a bit of a shame. But Shea and Hess's book, which was published in 1992, would probably still be the definitive word on the battle anyway, so perhaps that knowledge has deterred others from taking up the challenge of writing about P. Ridge. At any rate, you can find P. Ridge, Civil War Campaign in the West, by William Shea and Earl Hess, listed along with all of our other book recommendations, if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
0: As we're getting near the end of 2014, Rich and I wanted to say thank you to so many of you who have contacted us this past year through Twitter or on Facebook, and also for all those great five-star reviews y'all continue to leave on iTunes. All those expressions of support and encouragement mean a lot to us.
1: Yeah, and we know a lot of you look forward to each new episode every week since you've told us that. So we feel kind of bad that we're going to take the next two weeks off, but hey, come on, it's the holidays, so we don't actually feel too badly about taking a break, and we know that you guys will understand. So we'll have the next Pea Ridge episode out to you on Sunday, January 4th, and over the next two weeks, if you really miss us, don't forget there are now two members episodes over on the website. Since just yesterday, we released the show on the Battle of Picacho Pass. And thanks to all of you who went over to civilwarpodcast.org and signed up this past week to be members of the Strawfoot Brigade, like Richard, Mike, David, and Simon.
0: And John, Jerry, Didier, and Will.
1: And Jeff, Craig, Christopher, Kathleen, and John. And then a big thank you also to Simon N. over in the U.K. and Glenn E. from here in Colorado for their donations this past week. Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope y'all have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.
1: And thanks, everyone. And we hope you guys all have a safe and happy holidays. We'll see you in 2015. Bye.